Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Rappencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. For those who have ever been frustrated when trying to book a national park or forest service campsite through recreation.gov, and I have my own stories about frustrations with that site, we talked to those behind the reservation site and came away with a better understanding of how it works for a story that appeared on The Traveler this past week. We also were able to share some insights in just how cold the Gulf of Mexico needs to get to stun a sea turtle. And we relayed the first prediction of when the cherry blossoms on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. will reach their peak this spring. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, I asked contributing editor Kim O'Connell to join me to discuss some of the stories from across the country that we're working on at The Traveler and which we'll be rolling out on The Traveler in the weeks and months ahead. And Lynn Riddick has a short story about a unique fundraiser that's giving Wind Cave National Park new tools to manage and learn about the genetically pure bison herd there. Interior Federal Credit Union is the official credit union for the Department of the Interior, which includes the National Park Service. Take them with you wherever you go with digital banking and stay connected. Not a Department of Interior employee? Not a problem. Visit their website at interiorfcu.org to learn how to join. Start this weekend. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Even though National Parks Traveler produces content on a daily basis, um, we do put some some planning into our editorial calendar. And to uh, go over some of the stories we're working on, we've got Kim O'Connell, our contributing writer, um, based in the Arlington, Virginia area. Kim, thanks for joining me today. Glad to be here, Kurt. So, you know, a lot of times in my background with the Associated Press, you just kind of worked with what was thrown on your plate, so to speak. Um, But, you know, fortunately, we're being able to to get some time to put some planning into some of our coverage. And I know you've been looking at a couple stories that you're looking forward to to tackling in the the coming weeks and months. 
Why don't you tell us about some of those? Well, I'm pretty excited about some research that I'm doing along the Blue Ridge Parkway. I love the Appalachian Mountains. I live, you know, like you said, in Virginia. And so I go to Shenandoah National Park a lot. And so I'm very familiar with Skyline Drive in Shenandoah and the beauty and the history embodied in a historic parkway. But I've spent less time along the Blue Ridge Parkway, which of course connects the bottom end of Shenandoah with the top end of Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And it's a beautiful, long 400 mile plus parkway with lots of rich beauty and great cultural heritage. And there's a couple interesting stories that I'm looking into there. One of which is the ongoing rehabilitation and renovation of Flattop Manor, also known as the Cone Manor, which is a historic building that still exists. It's in beautiful shape along the Blue Ridge Parkway. And well, it's in, it's, in, it's in somewhat beautiful shape, right? Yeah, well, I think it will be in more beautiful shape. I'm planning on going next month in April. And, uh, you know, the pandemic has slowed everything down. It's made things more complicated. The rehab of this building is going forward. And apparently uh, these historic windows have been, you know, um, repaired and conserved. And they're going to be um, installed uh, at the end of this month. And some other work is being done on the house. So I'm looking forward to going there. I'll be visiting with some people from the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation down there who will show me around. The building supposedly is going to be opening to the public sometime in late April. And so I am hoping to get there a little bit before it opens to the public. And I'm going to get an insider exclusive for the traveler where they're going to let me inside. They said I could might even be able to go up on the widow's walk and get kind of a cool insider tour. So I hope to get some interesting um, photographs while I'm there and some interesting insight into the nature of the rehabilitation of this building and its history too. It has a rich history. And so I look forward to delving into that in the story as well. So that's kind of a history story that I'm looking into. That's a great example of what some of these friends organizations can do because the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation has raised millions of dollars for this uh, restoration of the Cone Manor, hasn't it? Apparently so. You know, I still have quite a bit of research to do, so I don't know if I have an exact number in mind, but they've been a longtime supporter of this project. They're very eager to share the results of this project with the visiting public and get people into the building when it's, uh, you know, open again. And so they've been a big supporter of that project down there. And a big help to us, actually. They gave us a a lot of possible story ideas that are involved in. So it's great for us as reporters and writers to have relationships with these different friends groups, too, because they're there on the ground. They know what's happening. So we can call them up and say, what's happening? Like, What should we be reporting on? And they give us some ideas. And so that's where this idea came from, is they gave us an update about what was happening there. And so I'm going to head down there. That should be fun. Great time of year. Yeah, so that's one story. But the other story I'm hoping to look into, too, is kind of a natural history story, which which is great, which is about the elk, that the population of elk around the Great Smoky Mountains. And um, as readers might know, there was a population of um, elk that were reintroduced to Smoky Mountains some years ago, I believe almost 20 years ago now. Do I have that right, Kurt? I think it's about... no idea. Yeah, I think it was about almost 20 years ago, but apparently the population of, you know, elk uh, in the Smokies is doing so well. I mean, this is another great story about a positive reintroduction of species that have really taken hold uh, back in its natural ecosystem. And they're doing so well that they're actually migrating 
north into the southern end of the Blue Ridge Parkway, which is great for the elk. They're expanding their range. They're behaving like elk should be behaving, which is great. They're moving around. But the nature of a long linear national park unit, like a parkway, means that you know there's sort of less land available for them to move around than in within the Great Smoky Mountains. So naturally, there, the presence of the elk along the parkway is causing some conflicts between elk and drivers, and you know, so sort of animal car <laughs> interactions and things like that. So, so it's becoming you know a management issue, a management concern. So that's another thing I'm going to be investigating when I head down to the parkway is kind of what can be done to protect the elk while allowing them to behave as these animals want to behave. Sure. Now, now a bit of wildlife trivia, you may or may not know, you mentioned that the elk were returned to Great Smoky Mountains. I hate to use the word re- reintroduced because they were native there once upon a time. That's right. But, <laughs> but way back in the early 1900s, there was an effort to um, bring bison back to the region. Imagine if that took off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'd be a really fun thing to see, though. I know you're used to seeing that out west where you are, but for me as an East Coaster, it'd be fun to see some bison roaming around the Appalachians. <laughs> it, it would be interesting, that's for sure. Interesting, maybe that's a better word. <laughs> now, of course, one of your favorite national parks back there in your backyard, so to speak, is Shenandoah National Park. And um one of the unique historical aspects of a visit to Shenandoah is going down to Camp Hoover, of course, where um, President Hoover kind of had his uh, summer retreats and uh, would hold some international meetings. Now, you're going to kind of spring forward to the 21st century and, and try and tackle another presidential retreat in the in the coming month or so, right? That's right. So I'm going to be doing some research and writing about Catoctin Mountain Park, and that's in Maryland. Um sort of, um, I would say, maybe about an hour or so outside of Washington, D.C., north northwest of Washington, D.C., and it's one of these lesser-known units of the national park system. You know, it actually is, its name is just Catoctin Mountain Park, so a lot of people don't realize until they get there that it's actually a unit of the national park system, but it's a, a beautiful mountainous park. I've been there several times. I grew up in Maryland, although it's been a while since I've been there. So I look forward to going there and researching it. But what it's famous for is that that sort of park encompasses Camp David. Camp David, which has been the presidential retreat since just after um, Camp Hoover, which was earlier in the 20th century. And I think every president of the 20th century after um, Hoover has gone to Camp David. I could be wrong about that, but it's become a very important place for presidents to get away from the bustle of Washington, D.C., yet also do important work there. So um, I I believe, I'm not sure, but I believe the Bidens have already been there. Um, um, Joe was inaugurated in January. So the only thing that's tripping us up is that, you know, obviously being, you know, a, a site that's used by presidents, it's hard to get access to Camp David, it's hard as a reporter to get information, but we'll see what I can find. You know, it'd be a fun to investigate. You know, I think you're right about um, President Biden and uh, his wife, uh, the First Lady, visiting there because I, I remember uh, a couple of weeks ago getting a, a press release about um, the roads in Catoctin were going to be closed. And that's usually a dead giveaway. <laughs> but I'm curious. I've been to Camp Hoover. I love it. It's it's out in the woods. There's a creek right there. Um, President Hoover loved to trout fish. 
in his very cozy, charming backwoods retreat, I have no idea what Camp David looks like. Do you? So there, I'm not sure how people have discerned this, but I, you know, what people do on the internet still amazes me. But there, uh, people have created virtual tours of Camp David online, so you can kind of now get your own helicopter view of Camp David. Um, you can see a virtual tour of it. You know, it's a it's a pretty nice rustic sort of, you know, outdoorsy lodge style building, the main building. You know, it's a pretty straightforward getaway, like you might want to say, maybe nicer than what we're used to. <laughs> but in terms of kind of a cabin getaway in the mountains, I think it's sort of typical rustic kind of style and very comfortable. Well, we're really looking forward to that. Um just to get out in Catoctin Mountain Park. I've never been there either, and uh, curious to see um, what you come away with. We're, we're always, um, we have writers across the country who are pitching us stories, and uh, some of the interesting ones um, coming up is uh, an old colleague, an old Associated Press colleague of mine, Rita Beamish. She's based in the San Francisco area, and um, she's been looking into sequoias and how many sequoias died during the um, the fires in California last last fall. Wow. And I know she's been digging up some really interesting numbers, and I think uh, readers are going to be saddened by how many sequoias we've lost in recent years compared to, say, the beginning of the 20th century. Um, she told me some of the numbers, and they're, they're just mind-boggling what was it used to be an annual loss of trees and what she's found out now. And it's not all tied, it's not all tied to fire, unfortunately. What are the other things that are causing mortality out there? Do you know yet? Or um, I'm not exactly sure, but I think climate change is a, is a key factor in, in what's happening and what's going on. And, and of course, in, in Yosemite National Park um, recently, and this wasn't related to wildfires or, or climate change, but um, they lost at least um, 15 sequoias in the Mariposa Grove um, by a wind event, uh, mono winds, they call them. Um, and that's totally separate from the story that Rita is pursuing, but um, it's just more evidence of uh, the natural world we live in and what happens either by wildfire or by other natural causes. Um, So anyway, that's going to be a good story. Rita's a a really good reporter and writer. We're also going to have a piece on Chaco Canyon, Chaco Culture Natural Historical Park, National Historical Park, and um, I'm looking forward to that. It's a, a coming to us from a a writer down in the Phoenix area. And um, he says he's been to uh, Chaco nine times and uh, always finds something new to to find out when he goes there. And he really likes to talk to the rangers and talk to other visitors there and get their impressions. So I think that's going to be a wonderful story. One of the interesting stories um, that I'm really looking forward to has to do with San Francisco Maritime National Historical Park in San Francisco, obviously. But they have a ranger there who has been leading a series of talks on sea shanties. I, I am. I think that's because of pop culture. Like, I think sea shanties have taken over this sort of TikTok, you know, platform that a lot of the younger people are into. That makes me sound like a dinosaur. But <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, sea shanties are a thing right now. And um, I guess it's the pandemic talking. Um, so I... That sounds like a the park is trying to capitalize on a pop culture trend that or fad that's happening, and yeah. give some real history actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and what's what's really interesting about that TikTok um, trend? My wife and I actually came across a movie on uh, I don't know if it was Amazon Prime or Netflix. I believe it was called Fisherman's Friend, 
and it was it was based on a true story in Scotland, I believe, or Ireland, about these fishermen who they would, you know, sing these sea shanties to to pass the hours while they work while they're working out in the ocean, and they were um, discovered, quote unquote, by uh, a talent agency, and they went on to record a number of albums, and they were very successful albums, and. You know, I just loved it. I wanted to go out and order a bunch of the albums. And then uh, a month or two after we saw that movie, this TikTok phenomenon with uh, Sea Shanties came up. So I'm, I'm sure uh, the writer, Jonathan Horowitz, will do a great job um, writing the story. But we might just have to get that ranger on a podcast and see if he'll sing some Sea Shanties for us. I hope you get him. <laughs> Sounds like a natural, doesn't it? <laughs> You know, it's just the diversity of the national park system is just incredible. It really is. There's so much natural and historical beauty to to really soak in and absorb. Of course, another story that we're following, um, we're not just about travelogue features or whatnot, but um, the Big Cypress um, National Preserve and and efforts to drill for oil there is an ongoing story that we're going to be covering um, for months, I'm sure. And uh, one piece that I'm working on now is uh, some geologists that I tracked down, independent geologists, to get their impressions of uh, what impacts drilling for oil might bring to Big Cypress. And um, what kind of surprised me is they they weren't that concerned with actually um, the oil production. What was more of a concern to them was um, the surface disturbance the need to put in roads, and are they going to have to put in a pipeline? And, of course, um, if they don't use a pipeline, are they going to have storage tanks? And those are the types of problems. And, you know, you were down in Big Cypress with me a year ago. You appreciate what that landscape is like and how soft and mushy it can be, but not just that, but its its role in the Everglades overall and that, that sheet of water yeah. coming through there. I, mean, I think, you know, it's interesting that we're all kind of starting to come up on our lockdown anniversary that, you know, for everyone in the United States, pretty much mid-March was when the world changed for us, you know, and and I always remember that you and I sort of got in our trip to the Everglades and Big Cypress in early March. It was like the last flight out almost, like we got in this trip and we had uh, really interesting um, experiences down there sloshing through Big Cypress, sometimes in those sort of wetland areas where the water was up to our ankles, already seeing the disturbance that was happening on the land from the exploration for the oil and gas areas, just the exploration, let alone all the infrastructure that might be coming if they actually succeed in in actually drilling. So um, it's, it's remarkable to think that that's still going on and that the impacts could yet become worse. It really is. And, and here's some perspective. I mean, you've got the uh, the road that goes from Naples, not Naples. Yeah, I guess it does go from Naples, Florida, on the, the West Coast over to Miami. And uh, I, I always mispronounce it, the to Miami, Tamiami Trail. <laughs> Someone will correct you. Somebody will Some correct listener you. if you said it wrong. <laughs> Be gentle about it. But anyway, to, to, to build that road, I mean, they actually went through there and, and broke up the limestone and, and piled it up to create this road above the River of Grass. And of course, they impeded the River of Grass. And in recent years, we've had a lot of construction to lift that road up, so to speak, and put a bridge so that the water flow can continue. Right. And the state and the federal governments are spending 
billions of dollars to improve that uh, flow of water. And now we're talking about going into Big Cypress and building roads, you know, a mile and a half, maybe two miles long, to create a drilling pad. And how is that going to impact the water flow, let alone the, the threatened and endangered species that uh, um, make their homes in Big Cypress and Everglades? Right. It's, it's pretty surprising. And I know that another story we're talking about is um, the fact that Everglades National Park is still considered a UNESCO World Heritage Site in danger, and that we've been talking about when we can safely, you know, go back to Florida to do more reporting there because, you know, Everglades and Big Cypress work hand in hand to create the, this greater Everglades ecosystem. They all have to work together and the Everglades is a site that's in danger, you know, by an international body declares it so. This doesn't seem to be the way to sort of protect a site that's already endangered to then go drilling and road building, you know, in the river of grass. So um, it's a really interesting thing that we're following and we'll see what happens. Yeah, we will. We will. A um, couple other quick shots. Um, one thing we're going to try and launch in April is a webinar. Um, uh, we're thinking about a monthly series of webinars um, that will be produced basically on Zoom as everybody's turned into Zoombies. And um, we're hoping to Zoom it live to um, both YouTube and to Facebook. And uh, of course, you know, being on YouTube, you can watch it later if you can't make the actual live presentation. But we think there's there are plenty of issues to, to talk about in the national park system, whether it's uh, looking at threatened parks like uh, Everglades with the invasive species or, or maybe Zion National Park with the overcrowding um, to the interesting stuff like you're talking about with the, the elk coming back to the Blue Ridge Parkway or, or maybe we'll take a trip up to, to Glacier National Park. And so we're hoping um, another format to, to bring more information and education about the national park system to our viewers and um, readers and uh, we're really looking forward to that. It's going to be fun. And if we can do it um, on a monthly basis and uh, bring in some experts to talk about some of these, these topics. And one other thing, you know, throughout the year, we usually only have one or two big fundraising campaigns. Um, and then th we might drop in a couple additional ones just to try and um, connect with the readers and the listeners and, and also ask for their support in making us uh, able to bring these stories to them. And so we're going to have um, some more traveler gear, as I like to call it, um, some water bottles uh, made in America and some uh, um, baseball caps that are um, um, carry the National Parks Traveler logo. So if you are a National Parks Traveler, you can identify yourself as such. I remember once I was in Old Faithful, um, the Old Faithful Inn, um, standing in line to get a, a espresso one morning and uh, had my traveler hat on and um, one of the other people in line asked me, hey, where can I buy that hat? And I had to tell them they couldn't. <laughs> but anyway, we're hoping to be able to, to roll those out um, beginning in, in April. So um, keep an eye on the traveler and uh, we'll bring those messages to you. That sounds great, Kurt. Yeah. Well, Kim, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, it's really fun to talk about uh, stories that we're working on and uh, as always, if uh, listeners or readers have any ideas of stories that we should be pursuing, you know, drop us a line at news at nationalparkstraveler.org. I know uh, Kim never gets weary of writing about national parks and topics tied to them. I sure don't. Thanks so much for having me here, Kurt. Thank you, Kim. Take care now. 
Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The bison herd at Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota is unique for a number of reasons. It was started with just 20 animals back in the early 1900s and has grown to hundreds of animals without any other additions to the herd. It is thought to be a genetically pure herd, that is, one without any cattle genes. You can help support research on this herd and come away with a plush bison calf for your home. Lynn Riddick has the story. It's been estimated by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that around the time Columbus reached the New World, there were as many as 65 million bison roaming the continent. That number, as we know, couldn't stand up against humans. By the late 1800s, there was only a relatively small handful left, several hundred or so, and fewer than two dozen in the wild, and those were in Yellowstone. Bison were wiped out by buffalo hunters looking to profit from their meat, skulls, and robes. And the military, which had an unwritten policy of killing bison to deprive Native American peoples of their commissary. After all, bison provided Native Americans with food, clothing, tools, and even fuel for fires. But some individuals were determined not to let bison go extinct. Among them, William Temple Hornaday, Charles Buffalo Jones, Charles Goodnight, and Theodore Roosevelt. As things would turn out, as we all know today, bison did not go extinct. Hornaday played a huge role in seeing herds established for the federal government in Oklahoma and South Dakota, and long served as president of the American Bison Society. He had also brought bison to the New York Zoological Society, having picked them up from private herds. 
As president of the American Bison Society, Hornaday offered the federal government a deal. If the government would provide the land for a wildlife refuge, the society would donate the bison to put on that refuge. That offer led, in the fall of 1907, to 15 bison from the society being shipped to Oklahoma and the Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge. That refuge had been created just four years earlier to preserve an intact patch of mixed grass prairie and the native wildlife that went along with it. Six years later, a site in western South Dakota was about to become another refuge for bison that Hornaday provided. There, one of Hornaday's representatives found a rolling, mostly open, grassy landscape cut here and there with creek beds and occasional springs, as well as, quote, ravines, gullies, and draws that afforded protection from storms and were supplied with good grass of one kind or another. Congress, on August 10, 1912, passed the needed legislation to both create the preserve and accept the society's gift of 14 bison. The 14 bison headed west late in 1913 in two steel rail cars coupled to a 14-passenger car train. As it rolled west, the train drew interest from onlookers. At many stops, crowds gathered to learn about the animals and their destination. Some of the curious were even given the chance to peek into the crates near the car doors. 63 hours after leaving New York City, the bison reached Hot Springs, South Dakota on a cold late November day. Their crates were carefully hauled out of the freight cars and placed on a variety of wagons for the final 11-mile jouncing excursion to the new game preserve, which covered not quite 4,200 acres on the northwest corner of what today is known as Wind Cave National Park. When you visit the park, ask at the visitor center for directions to that piece of land where bison came home to. And as you travel around the park, you can see the descendants of those 14 bison enjoying the landscape. And some of those descendants might even be sporting GPS tracking collars, courtesy of a unique fundraiser that's helping to preserve the herd and contribute to a larger bison education and restoration effort. Here to tell us more about the Adopt a Bison fundraiser and how donations are helping the park's unique bison and historic herd is Patty Ressler, Executive Director at the Black Hills Parks and Forest Association. Hi, Patty. Welcome to The Traveler. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Patty, tell me what the Black Hills Parks and Forests Association is all about. Yeah, well, we are a nonprofit organization that partners with public land agencies, specifically the Park Service, National Park Service, and the and we also partner with the U.S. Forest Service. And so we actually have several Park Service and Forest Service partners that we uh, work with to operate retail within those agencies and help with their interpretive and education programs. So MPS partners include Wind Cave National Park, Jewel Cave National Monument, Scotts Bluff National Monument, and Agate Fossil Beds National Monument. And then on the U.S. Forest Service side, we have the Black Hills National Forest, the Nebraska National Forest and Grasslands, and then the National Grasslands Visitor Center. So we operate uh, retail locations, uh, 16 different retail locations within those seven partner agencies. And a portion of the proceeds from our sales go back to support those agencies and their education and interpretive programs. 
Tell us how many bison are currently in the herd at Wind Cave National Park. Well, that's a great question. Um, the The park itself is about 51,000 acres, and that uh, size of a space supports between three and 500 head of bison. And how much roaming room do they have there at the park? Pretty much the whole park, yeah. There is um, a small, about 5,000 acres that has not really been developed yet for, for use and and I know that the bison are are not using that space at this point in time. And then there's a very small couple of acres, few acres, where the visitor center and the park campground are located that the bison do not have access to. So tell us what's so special about the bison herd at Wind Cave National Park. They are the most genetically pure North American prairie bison found in the United States. That's what's really exciting and one of the reasons why we've established our adoptive bison program here at the park is that because of the origins of this particular herd and because the park has been um, very adamant in their resource management of the herd, um, they have been able to keep the genetic makeup of this herd to about 99, over 99% genetically pure North American prairie bison. They have been able to um, have a breeding program and established a program with a couple of other partners that have allowed them to keep that genetic diversity and, and keep the species from becoming extinct, number one, and then and, and to flourish, number two. Now, you say the park wants to maintain about 300 to 500 animals there. When those maximums are reached, uh, where do the overflow animals go? The Wind Cave National Park has established, about 10 years ago, established a relationship with the Nature Conservancy. And um, within that relationship, then, the park does a a capture, what they call a capture, where they try to, to bring as many of the herd to their bison corrals as possible, and where they, they take the opportunity to take hair samples and blood samples and inoculate and, and try to get, you know, do as much as they can to make sure that the animals are, are all healthy and safe. And then they'll call the herd at that point in time based on the number of yearlings and, and two-year-olds that they have. So the, the way they look at it is, is um, number one, how many have they rounded up? And so how many animals do they have and, and what can the park support? That's the first determining factor on, on how many they decide to, to move out to the other herds. And then it's also based on like the number of males and the number of females that they have. And so they obviously want breeding females and they, and they want to have enough bulls, but they don't want too many bulls. So where are these other satellite herds? Uh, they're scattered all across the country. There's one in Oklahoma. There's one in Arizona. There's one in Kansas. Um, there's one in Iowa. I believe there's one in Illinois. And um, so, yeah, they, I think those are the five satellite herds that the Nature Conservancy has at this point in time. And, and all of those herds were established from the bison herd here at Wind Cave. The other thing that Wind Cave does is also provide bison to um, native tribes. 
and they can use them either to establish their own herds or um, if they'd like to use them for ceremonial purposes, whatever needs they have, they're able to, to uh, have those pure North American prairie bison available to them to, to utilize. I want to talk about the Adopt a Bison program now. What's the purpose and what do you do with the money raised through the program? So the purpose of the program is to actually give the resource management team some additional funding to, to do the things that they need to do to keep that genetic diversity intact. And so we started the program in 2018 and have since raised um, over 35000 I think closer to $40,000. And that's through the sale of a couple of different products. One product is either a baseball cap or a really cute bison calf plush. And the cost to purchase either one of those is $35 and $20 of that $35 goes to, to the program. And then the other product that we have at this point in time is a print that was created by uh, Charlie Harper. He's, he was an American artist um, that he, his heyday was pretty much in the 50s and 60s. So Charlie Harper created a lot of poster art for the National Park Service, Glacier Bay, Hawaii Volcanoes, Rocky Mountains, Isle Royale National Park. So he's got some interesting history with the Park Service. He was very environmentally conscious and his art reflected that. He he tried to be extremely accurate with his artwork and especially with animals and make sure that the artwork showed the correct habitat and correct settings for the animals and things like that. And this particular uh, print that we have available to us, it's a, an, a bison, uh, American bison is the name of the print. And it was a, a one of his pieces that was published in a Ford owner's magazine in 1956 or 57. I, I don't remember which year it was, but it was one of those two years and had not been published since. And the way we were able to have access to it was through the Nature Conservancy that Charlie Harper Studio has a strong relationship with the Nature Conservancy because of their like-minded feelings about conservation and, and animals, and because of the relationship that the Nature Conservancy has with Wind Cave National Park, we kind of put two and two together, and Wind Cave National Park got us in touch with the Nature Conservancy, and they uh, allowed us to have access to, um, exclusive access, actually, to this print and make it available for sale um, specifically to help fund this uh, adoptive bison program. The print that we have right now is available for $150. And of that $150 cost, $100 of it goes towards the, the adoption program. I want to go back to the benefits of the donations. Um, yes. I understand that you have purchased or, or you're Funds have enabled the purchase of GPS tracking collars for bison. Tell me a little bit about that. How are they used? Sure. So that was, we were so excited um, when we had the opportunity to purchase 10 GPS tracking collars. And they were put on 10 uh, females that were captured in the, in the last capture, which was in 2019. 
and then we are paying for the monthly fee to to download that that data, download that information. And so we are working with the resource management team right now on figuring out a way to put that information into a format that visitors will be able to see and be able to learn from. And um, it also gives the resource management team really an opportunity to find out a little bit more about the herd. Um, As I said before, they let this herd roam through the park and they've really had a very hands-off management approach to the the herd. Um, And they've done that very deliberately. So they really haven't known like where they traditionally moved to and from within the park, you know, what areas of the park they use the most, where do they have typically, where do they spend the majority of the winters, where do they spend the summers, what waterways do they um, typically, what streams do they most typically hang out by and, and drink from and, and things like that. So these collars will give them a much better idea of how they move in the park and then they can better manage those resources so that they keep the bison healthier, you know, so if they need to do some redirecting of, of waterways, or if there's a, an issue with the waterway, then, then they'll know that they need to do something with that by following the, the tracking on these collars. Now, you also hope to bring program funds to urban areas to help educate about bison. Anything specific that you have in mind for that? Well, a couple of things that we're we're working on with the resource management team is that once, like I said before, once that information is in a usable format, we hope to have a kiosk or some sort of an exhibit in the visitor center itself that will give visitors a better idea, number one, of where they where the bison are, and then hopefully show them that those migration patterns or those movement patterns um, within the park. So that's, that'll be the first, um, the first phase. And then the park already has a very strong distance learning program. And so we want to make sure that we work with the uh, interpretation team here and um, develop a program around that kind of information that they'll be able then um, through a distance learning portal to, to put out to, classrooms all over the world. They currently do programs for classrooms all over the world about the cave itself, about the local geology and and things like that. And so this will just be another uh, opportunity for them to to teach this kind of information in the classroom setting that way as well. Now, I have to say last year, I made a donation and uh, I got the baseball cap. And I have to say, I do get some comments about it when I'm on the tennis court. (laughs) Awesome. I'm happy to hear that. Thank you. Well, Patty, thank you for your time today and telling us about the Adopt-A-Bison program to help maintain the bison population in Wind Cave National Park. Where should someone go to make a donation or to, you know, get one of the commemorative items? They can go to our website, which is blackhillsparks.org. And you can go on. Uh, We are also a member organization. You can become a member and help to support us on an ongoing uh, basis. Or um, if you go to our Shop Now tab on the the website, then you can also purchase either uh, Adopt-A-Bison product. Uh, We also have an Adopt-A-Bat program at Jewel Cave National Monument. So that's on there as well. And, uh, And then we've got lots of other 
uh, interpretive and educational items that talk about the Black Hills and the Nebraska Panhandle and the Sand Hills and the forests and the grasslands and lots of different things that tell tell people about the area that where we live. That sounds great. Um, I wish you continued success with your program and uh, know that we are rooting for the bison. Awesome. Thank you so much. We, we love, love supporting our national mammal. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Keep an eye on the Traveler website for when we begin to roll out our Traveler gear, ball caps and water bottles, that will help you prepare for this summer's outings in the national parks. And next month, we plan to add to our news channels by bringing you a monthly webinar focused on news and features from around the national park system. The first show will feature a discussion of threats to some national parks. We think you'll like it. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.